If Doug were here this morning, he would inform us this is the ninth sermon in our series on the signature of Jesus. And the desire and goal of this series is that the signature of Jesus would be imprinted upon our hearts and upon our lives in doing justly and loving kindness as we walk humbly with him and go beyond ourselves and these walls to those round about us with the love of the Lord. Sometimes in having to do that, or sometimes in doing that, something that we have to do if we're going to go beyond is to overcome prejudice. Now the term prejudice can be defined as prejudging or irrational attitude. An example of that in the scripture is when Philip, the other Philip, who later became an apostle, in John 1 finds his friend Nathaniel and tells him about Jesus who is from Nazareth. And Nathaniel replies, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see, he just automatically is prejudiced against anybody who comes from Nazareth, though he doesn't know the Lord personally at that point. Prejudice can come in a variety of forms. There can be racial or ethnic prejudice. There can be religious prejudice. There can be economic or educational or political prejudice. There can be prejudice in regard to age or gender. Do you know there can even be prejudice regarding something as small as style? I have actually met a couple of people who attend our traditional service who are a little prejudiced against anybody that goes to the rock and roll service down at the other building. I've met a couple of folks down at the contemporary service who are a little prejudiced against anybody who wants to worship in that old-fashioned traditional style. And so we have to be very, very careful. You see, God challenged the children of Israel not to be prejudiced. Doug has again taught us in sermons past that there were four vulnerable groups that God said, I don't want you to be prejudiced against. The widows, the fatherless, the poor, and in a newer translation it says aliens. I like the King James here. It says strangers. When we say alien, we think of a space creature. But strangers, someone who's a non-Israelite. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10 and verse 18, the Bible says of the Lord, He defends the cause of the fatherless and widows. He loves the stranger, giving them food and clothing. And then in verse 19, You are also to love the strangers, God said to the Israelites, because you were strangers in Israel, or or in Egypt. And then you come to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 7 and verse 9. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, showing mercy and compassion to one another. 
Do not oppress the widows, the fatherless, the stranger, or the poor. In our text today, Philip overcomes the potential of prejudice to carry the gospel into Samaria. Notice Acts Acts 8 and verse 4. Those who had been scattered... Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. First of all, notice the mission. It says in verse 5 in the first part that Philip went down to a city in Samaria. You see, he is fulfilling the mission the Savior had given. Because when Jesus was ascending up in the clouds into heaven, one of the last things he said to his followers was this, you shall be my witnesses, Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now in challenging his followers to minister in Samaria, he was challenging prejudice. Because the Bible tells us in John in chapter 4 that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. There was a prejudice between the Jewish people and their neighbors, the Samaritans, though they lived in the same land known as Israel. And it has started a long time before, clear back in 2 Kings chapter 17 of the Old Testament, when the northern ten tribes of Israel, as a kingdom known as Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah, when the northern kingdom of the Israelite people had been conquered in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian Empire, the majority of those Israelites were moved eastward into the Assyrian Empire. And then the Assyrian leadership brought people who were not Israelites and repopulated the land. Two things happened. One, there began to be intermarriage, if you study the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, between some of the Israelites in the north and these other non-Israelites. Number two, there was an intermingling of true and false religion. When these other peoples who were non-Israelite had been moved into the northern kingdom area of Israel, they had brought with them their false gods and false worship. God began to judge them by sending lions among them to attack them. So word was sent back to Assyria. The God of this land is sending lions to attack us because we're not worshiping him. So a priest was selected and sent back to the northern area of Israel to teach them the way of the Lord. Here's what happened. They began to worship the Lord while keeping their false worship and false idols as well. And so the two became intermingled in their race and in their religion. 
The Samaritans were not true to the Jewish way. Consequently, over the years, there had become great animosity and prejudice between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. The Bible tells us that now Philip goes over that prejudice to carry the gospel into Samaria. And he's not without precedent. Because our own Savior took two days out of the three years of his earthly ministry after bringing the woman at the well of faith in him to spend time in a Samaritan village ministering to them. There was another time, however, when Jesus was rejected by Samaritan people. They said, you can't pass this way. You're a Jew. There was another time when Jewish leaders, John 8, 44, 48, called Jesus in as a slur, a racial slur. You're a Samaritan. And so we see all of the animosity, and yet Jesus had prepared the way by being there himself, and he'd also prepared the way by one of his classic parables, the parable of the good Samaritan. And so now Philip goes down into Samaria, irregardless of prejudice, because he's there to share the gospel. And may I say to you and I, that we too must never let prejudice in any form or of any sort, keep us from sharing the love of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. Just how do we overcome prejudice when we are given the opportunity to minister in a setting where we're not comfortable, or we might feel like, I don't want to be in this setting with these people? Well, I would say, first of all, study the Word of God. Some of you may remember when you were children, if you went to an evangelical Bible-believing church, singing a little song in children's church or Sunday school, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Now, where did that song come from? It came from the Scripture. Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Acts chapter 17, Paul, a Jew, is standing in Athens on Mars Hill speaking to Greek people and says, For from one man... God made all nations. We're all descended from the same fellow, Adam. Then we come over to Ephesians chapter 2, and we love to quote verses 8 and 9, how the Bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves. And verse 10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works. But come on down to verse 14, where Christ has taken the Jew and the Gentile, the non-Jew, and has made the two become one, destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between us then you come to heaven in revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 and the throngs in glory praising the savior sing to him and say to him and shout to him you are worthy for by your blood you have purchased persons to god out of every tribe and language and peoples and nations if you carefully study the word of god there's not much room for prejudice. Secondly, I would just encourage you to avoid stereotypical labels. In a previous pastorate that I had, we had a small gymnasium 
in the church facility. And some of us would go down to play some basketball, and one of our members was African-American, and sometimes others of the members as we were playing would make comments about his basketball skills and his race as African-American. And finally, one day as, as a pastor and just, I hope, as a Christian brother, I got weary of it, and I said, guys, listen, why do we always have to make allusions to race and sports? And I just thought to myself, you know, why do we always have to say, well, you know, that guy, and he's black. Or, well, you know, that, that white person, or, or that Asian individual, or that Indian person. And why can't we just say that person, that guy, that gal, that brother, that sister? I would caution us that we avoid stereotypical labels. Thirdly, let's, let's take the opportunity to interact. I loved it. I, I just, sometimes I really feel as I preach that the Lord confirms to me by the Holy Spirit that I'm on the right track in a sermon. <laughs> I'm sure I've been on the wrong track many times. But once in a while, and here just this past week as I'm preparing this sermon, I get a letter from the Verona Presbyterian Church and how in their fellowship desiring to be beyond in their community. They're actually dealing with a study on anti-racism and cross-cultural ministry because they don't want to let prejudice keep them from sharing the love of God with anybody and everybody in their community. And I thought, how appropriate. And then I would just say as well, in overcoming prejudice, recognize we can be distinctive without being divisive. We are. We have differences culturally and colorally and all of that. And we can recognize that, but we don't have to be divisive about it. Just recently, I was invited to preach on the north side for a friend of mine at his church. And I was the only non-African American in the whole fellowship that night. And before I got up to preach, the men's chorale from Mount Ariat Baptist Church got up, and I mean, they sang the roof off. And as they were singing and the people were rejoicing and praising God, they all began to clap and they all began to sway and they all began to move, and I tried to keep up with them. And finally, I realized, Tim, you are embarrassing yourself. You are embarrassing these dear people. Sit down, shut up, and enjoy. So I plopped down and I worshiped in my heart as they worshiped bodily in praising the Lord as well as with voices. When I got up to preach, I said, I've got to be honest with you. I said, I admire the rhythm. I said, I love the rhythm. I just ain't got the rhythm. And you know, we could all relate because regardless of whether we had the rhythm or not, we were there to worship the Lord. And so let us not keep, let prejudice in any way, shape, or form keep us from carrying out the gospel. And that's what Philip did. He went down to Samaria. Number two, notice the message in verse five. He says, and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now that term Messiah is a great term. 
It's literally the anointed one. John 1.41. We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. It means the anointed one. We find it in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 5. The anointed priest had the special opportunities to bring certain sacrifices to the Lord. He was the selected one. The anointed one. You come to 2 Samuel 1 and verse 11. And the king of Israel who had been specially anointed to be God's king over his people was called the anointed one. Then the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel 9 and verse 5, the, uh, 25, the Bible says that the anointed one would come in days to come, a ruler for the people of Israel. And that morphed into the concept that the Jews over the centuries looked for the Messiah to come as their savior and their deliverer and their ruler. And in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior is on trial before the Jewish high priest, the Jewish high priest says, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. We often preach of the I am's in the Gospel of John. I am the way, and I am the gate, and I am the door, and I am the shepherd, and I am the life. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest I am's is when the Lord Jesus responded to the question, Are you the anointed one? He said, I am. Why? Because Hebrews chapter, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. He is God's anointed and appointed one for our salvation. And that was the message that was being preached. But I found it interesting that one of the commentators I studied noted this priority. Philip is also about to do some miracles and bring some great blessings physically and emotionally to people. But the priority first is presenting the saving faith, the saving message of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And you know, it's a reminder to us, it is wonderful to do all that we are doing in being a blessing to the communities around us. But we must never lose sight that at least in part we are doing this that we might gain an opportunity to share with them the message that Jesus saves. You see, we are not just called to be an earthly blessing. We are called to be an eternal blessing. And it's wonderful if their tummy is filled. And it's wonderful if their back is clothed. And it is wonderful if equipment or some type of furniture or appliance is helpful to them. And it's wonderful if their house is painted or the park is cleaned up. And that's all great. But in the end, all of that will not matter if we have not shared with them the saving message that Jesus saves. It goes hand in hand. And then, after proclaiming the Messiah to them, he also performed miracles. And these miracles included demoniacs being delivered and the disabled being healed. I call it addiction and affliction. Addiction in the sense that something beyond themselves was controlling some of these people. Demons. And sometimes we speak of someone who's drug controlled or alcohol controlled or sexually controlled or in some other way controlled. We say that's their demon. Something outside of them that controls them. And then there came freedom to those who had illness as well. And the goal is simply this, brothers and sisters, as William Barclay, my favorite Bible commentator, he noted Christianity is never a thing of words only. 
You see, the ministry, and that would really be our third point, what he did here, the ministry, if you study the term minister or ministry in the scripture, in the Greek language, do you know what it is? It's primarily the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. To be in the ministry, to minister, to be ministering, is really to be serving, to be going beyond and showing kindness and showing justice to people. And that's what's happening here. And so there's the blessing of freedom that comes. And while you and I may not be able to lay our hands on someone every time and deliver them from a demon. Now I believe in exorcism in certain situations, but that's not the focus of today. And while we may not be able to walk into every hospital or to every wheelchair and raise up those who are ill, what we can do is bring a freedom and our love for Christ and for others. As he said in Matthew 25, I was hungry, you fed me freedom from hunger. I was thirsty, you gave me drink freedom from thirst. He said I was sick. Now he didn't say you came and healed me, but he does say, you came and took care of me. In other words, they did what they could to be a blessing and a comfort and a help and an encouragement and a prayer partner to those who were in need. So you see, the message and the ministry go together. I like the way my dad puts it in the sermon he has. He said, some Christians just want to be walkies. They say, you know what, I don't ever say anything about Jesus, I just live it. He said other Christians want to be talkies. They just want to talk about the Lord all the time. They never want to do anything. He said, we need some walkie-talkies. They minister both in speech and in service. And that goes scripturally because James said in James in chapter 2, verse 14 and following, he said, you say you have faith, I have deeds. He said, how can somebody who has material possessions and sees someone who's hungry or naked and needs food and clothing, how can they say to them only, be filled, be warmed, go in peace, and doesn't minister to them? He said, that is faith without works. It is dead faith. John said the same thing, 1 John 3. He said, here is how we know that Christ loved us. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for each other. And he said, if a brother or sister sees someone, a brother or sister who needs food and clothing and doesn't meet their needs, how does the love of God even dwell in that person? You see, brothers and sisters, serving, sharing, going beyond, in giving the message, but also reaching out to be a blessing to meeting needs, that goes right along with a living faith and the love of God in our hearts and lives. What's the result? Notice verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. That's the mood. So we have the mission. He went to Samaria, overcoming prejudice. The message, the Messiah, the anointed one who saves. The ministry, serving others where they were at, helping them in their hurt. And number four, the mood. There was great joy in that city. Recently, Doug preached on great grace. And it's the very same Greek word here, great joy. It is the Greek word megalon. It's literally the idea from where we get the term mega. We talk about a mega store. 
or we talk about a mega church or a cheerleader gets a megaphone. It amplifies, it intensifies, it expands, it enlarges the idea of mega. There was mega joy in that city. One commentator said three reasons why. Number one, can you imagine the joy that comes from the healings? Number two, can you imagine the joy that comes from the conversions? Number three, can you imagine the joy in families who have loved ones who need to be converted to Christ or who need to be healed and delivered? And when that happens, oh, the great joy, the intense joy, the mega joy. And then I found a verse that just thrilled me. We're going to celebrate soon Christmas. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14 that the Bible says the night the angel came, that first Christmas night, and spoke to the shepherds about the birth of Jesus. He said, I have glad tidings that shall be of great joy. Same term. I mean the thrill of Jesus coming. That's the thrill here. We all can appreciate great joy. I loved it the other day. I was watching a little bit of football. And Florida State beat Notre Dame. Now, regardless of what side you're on and the controversial call, when the game was done, they interviewed Coach Jimbo Fisher of Florida State. And they said, Coach, how do you feel? He said, pure joy. I had a friend call me the other day. She said, Tim, are you watching the World Series? And I thought, good night. I didn't know she was a baseball fan. And I said, no, are you? She said, oh, no. It's like the uh, a Super Bowl and the NBA championship. I just watched the last 15 minutes of the last game. She said, because I don't care who wins. I just love to see the winners celebrate. The joy. We can all understand that. We've all been to the joy of a marriage. We've all been to the joy of a birth. We've all been to the joy of a buffet. <laughs> the gospel, when souls are saved and lives are touched, brings great joy. You know how I know that? I have nonetheless authority on that than our Lord Jesus Christ himself who in Luke chapter 15 said there was a shepherd who lost a sheep. He went through the night to find it. When he found it, he joyfully put it on his shoulders. He got back home, said to his friends, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus said there is rejoicing. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The next story he told a woman loses a coin valuable to her. She sweeps the house till she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. I found my coin that was lost. And Jesus, following up on that, said, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. And then finally he tells the story about the son who is lost and he leaves the pig pen and he comes home and the father sees him and he makes merry and kills the fatted calf and they have a celebration. And as the older son comes in and says, I hear music and dancing. And the father comes out and says, Son, he says, we are celebrating because your brother who was lost is found. He was dead. He is alive. There's great joy. When people come to Christ, when people are blessed by our ministry, and when we overcome the wickedness of prejudice, 
and share the love of God with all. Amen? Amen.